The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, Italy, one of the world's biggest producers of wine with literally hundreds of grape varieties indigenous to its beautiful and varied terrain. Master of wine, Sarah Knowles, the Italian buyer for the Wine Society, is my guest today to help us explore. Plus, as ever, your recommendations for IWSC medal-winning wines. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Italy, one of the big three European wine producers alongside France and Spain, with a history of winemaking that goes back to the Romans. No country has more indigenous grape varieties. There are well over 300 listed the last time I looked. And it's arguable, at least, that no other country rivals it for sheer diversity either. Italians understandably have a healthy appetite for their own wines, as anyone who's dined out there will attest, though exports account for about 70% of production these days, with wines from Piedmont and Tuscany now traded alongside the great names of Bordeaux and Burgundy. Sarah Knowles is a master of wine and also the buyer for Italy at the Wine Society, so who better to talk about what that country can offer us? Uh, Sarah, uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to The Drinking Hour. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, Where to start with a country like Italy uh, in one hour? It's a challenge. Uh, But um, a big question first. In your mind, uh, what makes Italy so special for wine lovers? In my mind, what makes Italy so special is, is always linked back to the people so the people that i'm lucky enough to sort of meet when i'm um out buying wines for the wine society uh, really are um incredibly passionate about what they're doing and they tend to have it sort of running through their running through their veins so i think um that's what really makes it be very special but I guess that's probably a wrong answer because I could say that about most of the countries I buy from because the people um, involved in winemaking um, have to be some of the best in the world. Um, So other things that make Italy particularly special, uh, I think you mentioned it just in your introduction, the sheer variety of um, indigenous grape varieties that are out there uh, is pretty amazing. And the diversity of the landscapes across Italy um, is it sort of really lends itself to um, highlighting some of those different grapes and enabling winemakers to really make the most out of a particular terroir. Um, I think the the fact that Italy is is you know over seven hundred miles long, but only a couple of hundred miles wide, um, with this huge spine of mountains running down the middle and the Alps to the the north and volcanoes dotted throughout, and especially in the south, um, with all of that coastline, um, it really does create a sort of incredible myriad of, of sites um, that that any winemaker can really get excited about. And of course, we see it in other um, agricultural products too across Italy. So there's this huge care and attention paid to, to the importance of where a tomato might be grown or where aubergines best grown or chilies or, um, you know, various kind of olive trees and varieties have, have equal importance. And so I think that um, perhaps mindset of really valuing what very... Um, unique landscapes can bring to any agricultural product and 
grapes that happen to show their uh, their place so clearly when made into wine um it's a really exciting and special thing mm, absolutely good answer how did you first get into italian wines yourself so i guess um how i first got into wine more generally was through blind tasting um at a university club um and i i didn't know a lot about wine beforehand so it was a real discovery for me um but i was drinking italian wine at that point so it was um in the early 2000s and suave was hugely popular pinot grigio was about to come into its um sort of zenith and prosecco was just starting to um sort of come onto the radar for for a early 20s consumer as i was at that point um so italy was was really starting to um register for me sitting on my table and being very accessible and um, providing wines that had a level of quality that I was very happy with at a price point that I could afford. Um, and I think that was really important. And then as I progressed into the wine trade um, and started doing education and WSETs and, and so forth, um, I guess I fell into that same trap as many people who start to learn a little bit about Italy and realize just how complex and how large um, amount of information there is to learn. And so it suddenly became this sort of a little bit of a scary um, topic for me, as I think it is for many people as they start to learn about um, various wine regions. Um, and Italy was that sort of slight tricky puzzle to crack. But as I got into um, buying wine for the wine trade, um, I was working initially for buying um, wines and, and working with different wineries, supplying restaurants in London um, in, the, in the main. Um, and of course, hugely popular on-trade styles of wine were Italian. So things like Montepulciano, Chianti, um, Prosecco again, Pinot Grigio, Suave, you know, inexpensive Sicilian wines or um, perfect food, um, central Italian reds um, were really bread and butter for, for selling to, into restaurants. And so I very quickly started learning as much as I possibly could about the region and the country so that I would I would be able to find some really good gems and, and place them into good restaurants. The more that you um, learn about Italy, the more you realise you don't know, I think. It's an extraordinary country. That, 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 uh, that list of indigenous grape varieties uh, that I mentioned in the introduction and, and you referenced just now, it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? It's um, amazing. I, I feel now that I, I've been buying Italy professionally for a number of years. I, I studied extensively in, in wine, and yet almost every time I travel to Italy, I discover a new grape variety that I have, have to go back to my phone and Google um, in the car very quickly and try and work out um, whether it was a you know whether it was a great variety name or whether it was a specific region that I hadn't heard of perhaps or a town or a you know what am I looking at and that's a, a crazy thing um, to still be in a position where that happens um, more often than I would like to admit um, however it also is really encouraging in that this is an exciting country where um, even those people, um, you know, immersed in the wine trade and in the wine world can still find genuine discoveries. And I think that that is often something that we're really, um, or at least that's something that really excites me, that kind of hunt for a new discovery and a new thing. And of course, these wines and these grapes and perhaps these um, little towns and subregions that I'm discovering are not new to, to others. They're very well known within their, within their area and they're hailed and, and um, exalted and often made extremely well. Um, and that makes it even more fun that as, an, as a sort of outsider to that, I can um, bring it to members and to, to the UK and perhaps um, highlight it uh, in a way that um, 
I think is quite exciting. Yeah, and you uh, certainly do that. Um, it's fair to say there was definitely a time, and um, I, I'm probably a, a bit older than you, but um, but there was a time certainly when I was first getting into wine, um, where Italy was very much um, in the shadow of its neighbour France in terms of top end wines. I remember speaking to some sort of tweedy posh gentleman. Um, so sort of, this is probably the 1990s, uh, who was asking me what sort of wines I was into, and I said Italian wines, and he sort of he sort of tilted his head and said, "Oh well, yeah, mm, there, 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 there's some some interesting stuff there, I suppose, or something <laughs> like that." It was all a bit dismissive, and that is definitely changed but it was um, very much um, a factor until relatively recently wasn't it yeah no i think um i think probably france is, has just done a tremendous job over the years in promoting the regional wines and the classic wines that we know and love today and of course they have huge production and huge quality um to to back that up um so i think it's sort of france has done something um really impressive over the years in sort of getting that out there. And historically, of course, had very close merchant links with the UK. Um, and so is perhaps something, um, all the wines of those regions are perhaps something that we're more more used to here. Um, Italy is sort of catching up, I think it would be fair to say. And um, and different regions are doing it in different ways. And, and there are some regions that are really brilliantly working together at the moment to promote um, you know, a particular wine or a particular regional style. Um, and that will, I think, continue to enable sort of Italian wines to to be better understood um, by an international market. Um, but of course, the you, we come back to that sheer number of diversity of um, different grape varieties and, and styles made. Um, it is easier to to put forward two dozen um, styles of wine or big regions of wine that perhaps um, they have across France and the top grape varieties that are are really made in very high sort of volumes. Um, whereas when you're looking at Italy, it's such a myriad of differences and, and pockets of things being made that um, it is more complicated to present. Uh, so there isn't as much generalization that can be made. And and I think that will always um, sort of mean that it is a little bit um, in the shadow of, of France. But wonderfully, of course, it isn't in the shadow of France at all, I think, in terms of the quality that it offers mm. um, at any price point. So I think uh, the uh, the sort of um, entry level, it really goes toe to toe um, for value. And there are some Italian wines that offer great value under £10 and can come across anything um, from France or Spain or from, from America, South America. I think they can really compete. And then at the very top end, um, I know France sort of has a monopoly on these um, incredibly um, highly prized and priced wines, but there is fantastic quality and complexity in some of the traditional regions of Italy and those wines are getting more and more attention. So I, I hope that although it might um, take a little longer and, and Italy is still sort of working on the job, um, it isn't in the shadow of, of sort of France in terms of the, the product produced. No, and it's catching up on price uh, as well in, in, in recent years too. Um, mm. Having said it's really difficult to generalise uh, about a country that produces as much wine as Italy does, do you think you could sort of identify the hallmarks of uh, an Italian wine? You know, what makes it very uh, specific and different? So, of course, as you say, it's very hard to generalise across all wines. There will be exceptions. but um, But I think for... For most Italian wine production, it'd be fair to say that um, new oak is not necessarily a large part of the winemaking 
process. So they're, you know, often with Italian whites, they'll be completely unoaked. And often with Italian reds, they'll be using perhaps older oak um, to, to um, soften tannins, but not to add um, a particular flavor profile that you get from new oak. Um, there's also, of course, Italian red wines are famous for having um, reasonable amounts of tannin, um, some more than others, but most Italian red wines um, have a very notable, um, crunchy, uh, angular tannin profile uh, that I think um, enables those wines particularly to work well with food. Uh, across both red and white wines up and down Italy, um, acidity is, is something that um, stands out on, on the wines. Um, I think there's also a balance to Italian wines up and down the country that uh, that really sort of marks them out as being Italian. Um, and then on the whites, I think you can sometimes generalize some flavor profiles, um, although it, it becomes much more difficult because, of course, you can compare to other grape varieties around the world. But often Italian wines will have a real citrus, um, almost um, bitter citrus um, peel note, like grapefruit peel or, or lemon peel. Um, there's often, of course, a lot of coastal winemaking for the whites, so a lot of saline notes often come into, into play. So I often think of things like preserved lemons um, being quite a, a tick for Italian wines. And then further south, I think those, those sort of Italian white grape varieties like Grillo and Falangina and Fiano often have a, a bright acidity, as we talked about, but also then more of that sort of peach, um, apricot note that comes through. I think on the reds, we often talk about Italian red wines having notes of cherries um, up and down the country. The cherry might change from being very um, crunchy, red, acidic, tart cherries up in the north to perhaps more sort of black cherry um sort of uh, more uh, sweet succulent cherry from from things like Primitivo down in the south. But cherry as a flavour will perhaps um, unite a lot of the wines. Uh, I think you could probably also talk to some of the floral notes that are on the red grape varieties, as Sangiovese and Nebbiolo mm. are known for having quite a lot of floral um, component, you know, whether it's roses or violets or um, possibly even sort of herbal notes like black tea. Um, really come across. So I think there are some generalizations about Italian wines that that all of that sort of plays or comes together. But of course, with um, 300 plus varieties and <laughs> all these different terroirs, uh, there are, of course, huge differences between the wines from region to region and from grape to grape. Um, but I think there's an, there's an Italian um, style that perhaps pervades. Yeah, and they're very sophisticated and clever uh, when it comes to pioneering certain winemaking techniques as well, aren't they? They're, they're really um, sophisticated, technical winemakers, I always think. The likes of Ripasso, for example. Yeah, I think north, sort of northeastern Italy in particular has always been at the sort of cutting edge of creating and developing um, winemaking styles and techniques that really enhance the grapes that they have. So, of course, Ripasso and Amaroni using... Um, Corvina to make something with much fuller body when, of course, when it's made as a, as a simple Valpolicella might be more akin to a sort of Beaujolais style wine with a lighter body and a, um, a lighter colour and less tannin. Um, and so looking to, to sort of thicken it up, as it were, for, for a different um, occasion, a different market, um, Ripasso and Amaroni styles or now a Passamento styles across Italy are very um, popular and been done for a very long time. But also, of course, the Northeast pioneered um, 
making Prosecco with a single um, sort of closed tank fermentation, uh, as opposed to those sort of traditional method sparkling wines from from France. And of course, although those are now gaining in, uh, in notoriety and and um, numbers in Italy as well. Um, but there are sort of innovations there that are, have been very important. I think across Italy, though, on winemaking, the huge difference from sort of now and, and even just 20 years ago is, is that winemaking in general has, um, has got just streets better. Um, every winery is, I go into now looks like the sort of um, Ferrari um, mechanics dream in that they're full of beautiful equipment and uh, state-of-the-art modern technology that really enables winemakers to make exceptionally clean and pure wines. And I think that's probably been um, one of the major differences um, in highlighting the varieties out there. Um, so perhaps 20 years ago, it was quite easy to generalize that all Italian white wines tasted of you know, lemon and were medium acid and medium bodied and fairly um, innocuous. Whereas now each of these Italian white varieties is being made so cleanly and clinically um, that they're really getting to show their true colors. Um, so you're able to go to, um, you know, we work with a cooperative near Naples and even at a local cooperative, although a very good one, um, we can go and taste six, seven different Italian white grape varieties and see very clearly the difference between each of them. Um, and that's, I think, really exciting as a, as a step forward in winemaking for, for Italy. Your latest um, selection of uh, wines that were um, sent out to uh, to those of us in, in the press um, uh, has a, a, a you know as you'd expect with Italy a, a fantastically uh, varied uh, sort of range of grape varieties, but also those um, regional names that uh, I'm glad you said this as well because I confess I quite often think. Uh, just like you said earlier on, I'll hear about something like, for example, Tourassi the first time, and I'll think, oh, is that a grape I don't know about? And then it'll be mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a style, and um, and this this happens a lot uh, in uh, in Italy for me. So I'm so uh, relieved uh, that, that you, as a as an expert no. buyer and master of wine, <laughs> share that um, that, <laughs> Absolutely. that 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 horrible feeling of panic. But looking at some of the names uh, of the, of the different uh, wines that uh, were, were are sort of heading my way at the moment, including a a really unusual grape variety um, up in uh, uh, Lange. Um, we've got the Tourassi I just mentioned, a Fiano, a, a Suave Classico, which is a little bit more uh, well-known, I suppose. You said an interesting thing uh, in, in the uh, the blurb that accompanies these, that these grape varieties, uh, these wines uh, and styles, all share a certain lack of pretension that unites mm. them. And I thought that was a really interesting comment. Do you want to elaborate a bit on what, what you mean? Because I think it's very relevant to Italian wine more generally. It's perhaps a comment that comes from from a number of different things sort of coming together and each of them, um, I think, showing perhaps a humility or, or a, something that um, that enables these wines to be very unpretentious. Now it's, so some of it is in the winemakers and the people themselves being involved in, in the production and how they approach the wines, but also it's then in this very gentle winemaking. So often with these fantastic, um, especially the red wines, uh, where around the world it might be very tempting to use um, quite a lot of winemaking. Many of them are really just put into very old um, wooden um, body or, or vats um, and left for a number of years to, to enable the tannins to, to really come together and to, to be less aggressive uh, and bottled quite simply. And those wines are then often encouraged, or, or at least when you're in Italy, you're encouraged to drink those wines 
you know, in fairly simple restaurants, but with really um, fantastic quality, often those simple ingredients, um, and just enjoy them. And there's something around that um, Italian nature of um, drinking these, especially, you know, the white wines very young, some of the red wines quite young, or the, um, the red wines with higher tannin levels and quite a simple style that just encourages you to have another glass. And there's something <laughs> not to, you know, push it in the largest decanter you can find and have it poured by a, a you know, a gloved sommelier and, <laughs> um, you know, put it in a cellar and put it under a spotlight for 40 years and, you know, <laughs> have a cat- back catalogue of it. It's not the vibe isn't that in in you know i'm generalizing again so of course there are exceptions but across most of the the wines i work with the winemakers i work with these wines are for enjoyment and for drinking and for sharing and for food and for you know just chatting over um and i think there's something really fantastic about that i i talked on another occasion about how how grateful I am that there are Italian white wines like Pinot Grigio, like Suave, that we sometimes, as as a trade and industry, can be a bit dismissive of because mm. they're incredibly popular and they're also not the most showy wines. They're not you know, screaming from across the room as a Sauvignon might and they're also not going to age for you know another 10 years and be particularly fine as, as um, Chardonnay might in, in some areas. But they are wonderful everyday staples giving so much pleasure to so many people um, and enabling us to just enjoy a glass of white wine and sometimes we can forget that and how important that is and how sometimes we don't need the wine to compete with our daily lives or the conversation that we're having or the food that we're enjoying and that doesn't take away from the wine in my opinion it doesn't suggest that the wine is not well made or is boring or something like that it just it gives a different a different vibe a different style um, and I think that's particularly humble and um, to be encouraged and really unpretentious and it's welcoming. And I think it invites everybody in to give it a go and to, to see whether or not they enjoy it and to make up their own mind, um, whether they want to rebuy or try something else. Yeah, really good point on the likes of, of Pinot Grigio, actually, because I remember we did a, a, a virtual press tasting um, just over a year ago. And uh, and I opened this little miniature bottle of of Pinot Grigio, which would have it was Italian. Obviously, it would be uh, one that you had uh, that you had procured. And, and I sort of remember thinking, oh, okay, well, we'll just have a quick quick taste of this. And it was really delicious. And just everything you you really hope uh, a Pinot Grigio's going to to bring you. So, um, uh, but I, so I was guilty myself of having that slightly sort of um, sniffy approach to it, and then just really 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 enjoyed the wine so well done for that um the let's let's take some of the um the, the regions um and uh and and talk um uh, it'll have to be relatively broad brush but it'll be still fascinating to to hear your perspective um let's start at the top and talk about piedmont um the kind of key facets the wines and styles to look out for from this you know arguably one of the, the big two in terms of fame as wine regions yeah so of course i think um nebbiolo is king here and it's um making some of the styles of wine that rightly are being recognized around the world as as some of the world's best fine wines so things like great barolo great barbaresco uh, gattinara gemme these wines are are 
incredibly complex and yet fine and quite well balanced um, can have um, great concentration and yet a, a sort of lightness of touch that also comes with potentially very you know a high level of quite grippy tannins which I think when you discuss fine wines you're always sort of almost talking um, counterintuitively against yourself each time. You're sort of like, this is beautifully fine and balanced and concentrated and complex. And um, <laughs> um, But um, but often these wines can be. And of course, they're also known for, for their aging potential. Um, and so they, they can genuinely develop more interesting characters with time. Um, and that sort of really sets them into that quality wine sphere for me. Um, and we're working with um, just some wonderful producers who are getting better and better every year. So I think tasting the 18s um, from Barolo last year, I was um, really struck by the fact that the winemaking across the region um, is now in a place where these wines are approachable young. And to be able to um, manage the level of tannins um, and the level of acidity to the point at which only sort of three or four years later, you could really enjoy drinking it is quite remarkable. So it's really interesting to see how how that's all changing and how these wines are already um, coming into a into a their own time perhaps. But across Piedmont, I think there are there are other interesting things as well. So I we think that there's or I think there's some fantastic Barbera out there. Um, it really offers um, perhaps a a little step into Nebbiolo in style terms because of that high acidity and tannins, but it's being a little bit um, more juicy and perhaps a little bit fuller uh, in flavour. And so um, it's perhaps easier to to start understanding that um, profile of fruit. Um, I think the Lange region as a whole um, has started producing far better wines across the board. So instead of it being a sort of um, place where uh, Barolo or Barbaresco producers would, would put the wines that hadn't quite ripened or had overripened or hadn't, you know, had not quite gone wrong, you know, saving the best parcels for Barolo and Barbaresco, they would use the others for sort of Lange designated wines. Actually, now Lange is taking on um, its own identity and is benefiting from some very good vintages across the, the region and genuinely offers a step into Nebbiolo as an explore. There are, of course, then smaller um, pockets of very odd grape varieties we've talked about. So things like Pella Verga or Grignolino, um, you know, exist or Fraser um, within the region. And these are a fun, completely esoteric wines to, to try from great producers, because usually they are made by producers who are also making Barolo or Barbaresco. And so are able to, to really put some energy and time and effort into those um, more obscure grape varieties. Mm. Um, Tell us about Fraser, actually, because it's not a grape variety that I am familiar with, I, I confess. And it's, um, uh, it's part of your Italy offer that's uh, coming our way from the 10th of yeah. August. And it sounds, uh, from the tasting note at least, and I've got it uh, coming to me, I'm really looking forward to trying it. Um, it, it sounds like a, a grape that I should know, really. Well, I think it has this sort of reputation of being... Um a little bit like the the unsophisticated, slightly hairy, perhaps little sweaty uncle of Nebbiolo. So it's a very ancient grape variety and it does have links to Nebbiolo, although I think the, the genealogy of grape varieties is not my specialist topic. Um, but Fraser is, is really has a reputation for creating these very tannic, very rustic um, styles of, of 
of red wine um, that often need a very long time before they're um, really coming into balance. However, in the last few trips, we've been trying some really fantastic Fraser and, and there isn't a lot out there. So this is always a sort of um, a sort of side hustle. But um, but in this case, in this offer, we've got Piatin's um, Fraser and it, it's nothing like the, the hairy uncle of old. And it's much more um, refined and interesting. And you can see quite clearly it's linked to Nebbiolo. It has much more floral uh, sort of flavor coming through rather than that perhaps more rustic um, sort of gamey and animally leathery note that uh, we used to associate with the grape. And so in, in some instances, it's really making quite sort of fascinating wines that again could age and improve, um, but are also um, pretty approachable now. Sounds great. I'm very much looking forward to that. Let's uh, mm. take the other um, massive uh, wine region, yeah, the other one of the big two, mm. uh, Tuscany. Now, this has changed a lot in recent decades, hasn't it? Yeah. No, I think we're a long way from the the sort of um, straw-covered bottles of, of the 80s that were really more used for candlesticks and and all the rest. And, and of course, Chianti had um, huge success and has had huge success um, throughout, um, you know, wine history. Um, but Chianti and Tuscany more broadly has perhaps had it so much success that it was a victim of its own success at some point in the 80s and 90s. Um, I think in the last 20 years, um, and definitely the quality of the wines now being produced suggests that there have been some fairly major changes across the region. And whether that's focusing on on the grapes and um, really getting the viticulture right, and a lot of producers turning to uh, lower intervention methods of farming, as well as um, really considering where the grapes should be placed and which grapes um, should be where. Um, so there's a greater focus on on that. I think there's also greater focus on winemaking in general. So, um, you know, I was talking about the white wines benefiting from from a lot of technology recently, but also the reds. So in in much cleaner cellars and much um, much more controlled oak use, um, much better use of um, temperature and fermentation, of tannin management. Um, all of those sorts of things have sort of come together to create. I think a really exciting sort of landscape now for Sangiovese across Tuscany and and of course Chianti and perhaps in particular. Um, I've featured in the summer offer for the Wine Society a huge number of Chiantis, um, a lot from Chianti Classico, but also from from other subregions um, of Chianti because I I really feel that these wines are some of the wines that we might kick ourselves for not stocking into the cellar um, in 20 years' time. I think these might be the wines that um, are slightly under the radar now where you can buy some of the best producers, um, wines at still quite reasonable prices, you know, the likes of Felsner or Fontodi or Brolio or, you know, Castella di Arma. There are some incredible um, producers that are making wines that are completely affordable. Um, they're not inexpensive, but they're not going to break the bank. Um, and they will get better with time and could go in a cellar and should have much more prominence in in sort of um, wine-interested people's um, cellars or collections or wine racks or whatever that may be. 
Um, so I've really gone to town and I think there've also been some fantastic vintages of late um, in Tuscany. So the, the 19s are, are really singing at the moment. Of course, the 16s were, were fantastic. 2020 looks as though it'll be a very good vintage. You know, 2018 was very nice, a little warmer um, than others. So there are, there are some really good buys. And I think that then is true um, and perhaps has been better documented recently for for. Montalcino, you know, Brunello di Montalcino and, and um, Rossi di Montalcino's. Um, and of course, they've had slightly more, um, uh, perhaps, column inches in the last 10, 15 years, um, possibly longer. Um, and that's really um, helped their profile. Uh, perhaps to Chianti's um, sort of loss, um, really. But um, but still fantastic wines. Um, so no, it's a region that I'm. I was pretty amazed when I took on Italy at the Wine Society that, that it wasn't a larger region um, in sales terms, and so I've I've really focused on making sure that we have um, some of the really best producers featured all year round um, in a sort of rolling cycle, um, and trying to find some of the wines um, at a lower price point, so under fifteen pounds, um, but offer a sort of step into this fine wine category. Yeah, and uh, there is, as you say, some fantastic um, modern style, fresher Chianti being produced these days, uh, which uh, we, we encounter when we, we judge wines at uh, the likes of at the IWSC. What about Super Tuscans? Um, do you do much in, in that market? Because uh, we're, we're talking kind of punchier prices there, aren't we, usually? Yeah. I guess it depends a little on how we define super Tuscans. So my my predecessor and perhaps I have a, a huge bias towards Italian wines from Italian grape varieties. Um, and so we haven't, um, as a company, ever really had sort of large um, investments in some of the, the Cabernet dominant super Tuscans um, from, from Bulgaria or from, from the coast that um, but others do very, very well with. And of course, our um, wonderful wines in their own right. Um, it just doesn't happen to be something that we focused on. But we do work with um, some of the top wines from um, that are Sangiovese based that were perhaps super Tuscans before they've now become Grand Seleziones. And so those wines are um, at the pinnacle of, of what the region can offer. Um, and we're really delighted to have them within our within our selection but of course volumes are smaller prices are higher the demand is is more niche uh, but it's it's something that we're we're very keen to or i'm very keen to um continue supporting uh, another area that is a, a personal favorite of mine is sicily mm. and i know you are a fan yourself that's evident Huge in the wines <laughs> that you you bring uh, to us uh, as members um sicily again is a region that has changed probably beyond recognition in 20, 30 years, isn't it? Ah, amazingly so. And I, I wasn't lucky enough, actually, to have made too many trips to Sicily sort of 20 years ago. But in the last, you know, five or 10, as I've been visiting, um, I'm just constantly impressed by the wines and the value that they offer and the breadth of styles and the perhaps the friendliness of them. <laughs> These are wines that, um, that for all the right reasons, are, are just delicious and you know, easy to enjoy and easy to understand and have great varieties that um, offer immediate pleasure. Very few of the sort of Nero Davila that I taste need um, many more years. They're, you know, they're really delightful young. Um, and I think that's a huge advantage to, to red wines when they're in balance um, and offering such full 
embodied nature, but in a very balanced way, young. The whites, you know, things like Grillo um, and uh, across the island, things like Catarato and Caracante are, are really just singing at the moment. Um, and so I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan. And then, of course, you've got the, the likes of Etna suddenly rearing its head and creating um, very finely balanced and sort of energetic fine wines um, from Sicily that taste, um, so that sort of add, a, I guess, even more um, diversity to the island's production because Nerello Mascalesi um, has almost nothing in common with Nero Davila in terms of its flavour profile and is often talked about more as being perhaps uh, having more links to Nebbiolo in style terms. And so the sort of Nebbiolo of the South, which I think perhaps is a little simplistic, but but a nice way of looking at it. Um, and the you know the different vineyards and the the yeah the the sheer quality that you can sort of see coming from the old vines and these incredible volcanic vineyards um, is something very exciting to see. Um, yeah, the so Edna wines. I mean, you, you were showing at the uh, press tasting uh, mm. Pietra Dolce Etna Rosso twenty twenty. Um, you know, it's a, a I think quite well priced at twenty pounds. Actually, I think that's a very uh, fair price for what is a a, a really um, very fine wine um do you think when collectors talk about uh, the wines that are being sort of traded on the markets where they trade these wines uh, when you see things on the likes of livex you generally see piedmont and you see tuscany and and there's been great growth partly down to tariffs but also down to the, the rising quality and the rising recognition of mm. those wine regions do you think um, sicily and the likes of etna could be considered in that sort of realm anytime soon? I think in terms of quality, absolutely. Um, I think what Etna might um, struggle on is having the volume to be as relevant as Tuscany and, and Piedmont can be um, because they're, they're producing so much less. And so it's going to get sold so much more quickly and, and to, to fewer people. And so that sort of element of trading um, might have slightly less relevance. But of course, at the top end, um, within Etna already. I think some of those those producers are already sort of, you know, up there, up there and, and being seen and noticed and, and traded. So no, there's there's great potential for, for Etna to really stand separately and and do something quite different with its with its unique varieties and very unique style of wine. Mm, I should certainly be stocking my cellar, I think. Um, not chiefly for the, the, the pleasure that it's likely to bring rather than <laughs> any uh, f- financial gain, because I know the Wine Society doesn't really buy um, with, um, with with that in mind. No, about, we, we, try, we try hard to make sure that people um, people get to drink these wines because that's the that's the real pleasure um, of wine. Although, um, of course, there's a wider market for, for, for trading. What about Veneto then? Uh, you touched on it um, a while back. Um, celebrated, mm. of course, for Prosecco, which has been a phenomenon uh, in the trade. Uh, people can still be a little stiffy about it sometimes, uh, but uh, it's uh, no one can doubt the success uh, that it has um, achieved. But actually, Veneto, beyond Prosecco, um, is just a vast uh, region in terms of production, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think um, 
Veneto is just one of those regions that has has always done very well. And perhaps that's because um, there's this sort of stereotypical idea of Northern Italians being great businessmen. But here they are making fantastic amounts of wine and selling them internationally for many, many generations. You know, whether that's Amaroni and Valpolicella's success or Pinot Grigio or it's Prosecco or it's Suave or it's, you know, the list goes on and on. But what's exciting in, in the summer offer that we have in particular for Veneto is that um, 2021 across Europe was seen as a slightly um, disappointing vintage or incredibly difficult vintage because, of course, there were so many frosts and, and difficulties at harvest and the yields were, were massively reduced across France. And, you know, quality is is hit and miss depending on different regions. It's hard to generalize. Um, but there were sub, certain sub pockets. You know, I know that Austria had a particularly good year, but also Veneto and, and Veneto um, talking to winemakers um, just after harvest in 2021, they, they were sort of jumping for joy. It had been a fantastic vintage. It was creating you know, incredibly healthy, great bunches coming in into the wineries um, and setting up a fantastic year for Prosecco production and for Pinot Grigio and for Suave. And that's a really exciting story. And I think here they really benefit from that that perfect vintage for for them and and giving it more intensity and a little bit more um concentration of flavor what about prosecco because um some of it can undoubtedly be somewhat industrial uh, in nature um but mm-hmm. then um you know uh, it's also when done well um very light charming delicate um, a, a genuine alternative to you know traditional method uh, sparkling wine. Um, do you see any sign of the Prosecco bubble bursting? I don't think so. So we've, we've uh, the Wine Society has always sort of decided that Prosecco is something that we needed to stock one or two very good wines, but that also offered a commercial value. And so we're at particular price points. Um, and with those, um, it's quite, with quite a small selection, it's had huge success through, through our, our membership. That continues, but we haven't increased the range in a way that might have um, upset the apple cart. So we still only really work with two or three producers of very high quality wine that we are really um, very um, in touch with on a day-to-day basis so that we know that the wine that we're receiving is, is from um, what I consider to be really important. So from the hillside, hillside sites uh, where the glera has had um, a little bit more competition, where the yields are slightly lower, where the fruit is slightly more um, intensified because of that, where the night temperatures are slightly cooler and so the aromatics are slightly heightened. All of those small nuances really adding to the quality that's in the bottle. Um, and I think when that's the case, when you're focused on sort of wines like that, they they offer just such a, again, this unpretentious, charming experience for so many drinkers who who really enjoy um, a fruit forward style of sparkling wine um, and again in the trade I think we can get a little bit complacent and, and see huge success as being something that's um, you know not necessarily or huge commercial success as not necessarily being something that um, therefore means it's a particularly um, sophisticated wine but I would argue against it every day because I think that these wines um, and the Proseccos that we stock are, are hugely popular and they're popular for very clear reasons in, in their quality and their inherent likability of style. Um, in this offer I'm also really excited to have a, a, a wine from a smaller producer um, in a Cartizzi, uh, from the Cartizzi sort of um, area, which is one of the most, I'm sure you visited, but um, it's one of the most beautiful wine regions oh. I've ever seen. Gorgeous. Um, <laughs> it's small, it's tiny as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and you, you see this sort of 
incredible triangular mountain um, covered in beautifully cut, you know, um, tiered systems to, to enable the vines to grow in very small areas of, of the mountain. Um, and it's it's astonishing because I think the, the perception can always be that Prosecco is a bit industrial and it's probably a very ugly area and it's all going to be flat and all the rest of it. I and mean, it's just for some of the wines produced within the region and, and often the best wines produced within the region, that's just not true. They're from this you know incredibly beautiful landscape that is rightly UNESCO heritage sort of recognised and stamped and and um, the wine itself is is a wonderful um, slightly sweeter style of Prosecco that, that really shows that tower. Yeah, and so beautifully um, balanced as well with that, mm. that, that sweetness. Word for Campania, another region that I've noticed um, that you, you uh, buy quite a bit from. You've mm. been championing. Why do you do that? What, what, what makes you love Campania? Well, I think the variety of great varieties offered. Um, so I, I love Fiano, I love Falangina. Uh, I think as white wines, they both have um, tremendous kind of intensity and fruit sort of profile and some complexity and nuance that really get balanced by good acidity still and um, dry, crisp styles um, that mean that I seem to have them in the fridge an awful lot. I think they also offer value, um, which I think um, real value, so at, a, at any price point. But then Aglianico is such a delicious red grape variety to, to explore. And I've definitely bought quite a few Aglianicos um, recently for the Wine Society because I really enjoy drinking them. I think these wines um, perfectly match a huge sort of number of different dishes that, that I enjoy cooking. Um, they have a, you know, a balance of being quite full bodied, but yet quite, um, quite well balanced. So well, acid, you know, good acidity levels. They have tannins that are often a little softer. They have a sweetness of fruit that makes them very appealing. And yet they're also relatively complex with some spice and with some leathery notes um, as kind of, um, as more of a sort of standard for the great variety. Um, and they're coming from beautiful, um, beautiful vineyards and made by great people. So I've, I've definitely bought um, one or two more um, and, and started kind of pushing it as a, as a bit of a thing I enjoy. And tell us a bit more about Taurasi, by the way. I referenced it earlier. There's a wine uh, from there in your next uh, uh, yeah. selection. Uh, give us the, uh, the lowdown on Taurasi. Um, so it is just this incredible volcanic region um, that um, specialises in Aglianico and has has really taken it to this to the next level and it's perhaps um one of the first um well you know in a niche way well recognized um appellations for for aglianico um along with perhaps um uh, in basilicata uh, volture and so the two two combined to really suggests that um, Aglianico does well on volcanic soils um, and can show a lot of complexity. Um, and the, the wine we're working with from 2016, again, a lovely vintage across Italy, um, is now really hitting its stride. And it is a fuller bodied wine um, that is, um, I think, still offering great value at its price point, although it's sort of, you know, that sort of £20 mark. Mm. And what about Puglia? Because it gets very hot down there. Um, mm. The wines can be. Um, when not done as well, can be very alcoholic, very ripe. 
is it uh, more challenging to buy down in the deep south in in the heel in Puglia? Yes, no, I've, I've just come back from um, actually a total busman's holiday. So I went on, on holiday to Puglia um, and didn't visit wineries, but did drink an awful lot of wine. Um, and what struck me most was as I was driving around was that, yes, it's incredibly hot, but it's also um, incredibly coastal. So because it's the heel of Italy, you know, with coast on both sides, um, there is uh, a lot of impact in, in the evenings, especially getting much cooler um, and really giving some um, restraint to some of the, the grapes. Albeit, you know, the wines being created are, are usually of that slightly fuller bodied, warmer um, origin um, profile. I think Primitivo um, can make some some fantastic wines um, with real balance and, and complexity, a little um like it's you know the the old the the idea that Primitivo and Zinfandel are, are are linked in the same grape is highly debated and and seen as pretty clear now but but I think with Zinfandel in the states we're we're often able to sort of allow it to be quite a fine wine and so the likes of, of producers like Ridge um, or Once and Future or uh, Bedrock are making um, globally acknowledged fine wine styles that will age and will you know get better with time. And I think it's then quite interesting to look at the Italian primitivos and wonder why we're not giving them the same levity. Um, and so it's, I think some of the producers are making um, very good styles of primitivo um, that could, again, improve with age and, and be seen at that sort of level. Um, but in the meantime, what they're doing is offering great value because, of course, they are being, I think, a little undervalued at the moment. Um, and so when done right... Um, they can really um, put something quite exciting on the kitchen table. Mm. Um, but of course, the other great variety in, in Puglia for red wines that, that we really love, or I really love, is is Negramaro. Um, and, the, you know, some of the, the wines that Valone especially makes from Negramaro are, are just exceptional wines offering great value. So again, um, not sitting at prices that will, will break the bank, uh, enabling everybody to have something quite quite special without having to get um, too concerned about, you know, the company you're opening it in or the evening that you're opening it on or the the food that you've cooked to pair with it. And I think losing some of that that worry or anxiety around, you know, very posh bottles of wine and how when you should open them and being able to enjoy seriously good wine, but at a lower price is really, you know, something mm. that um, Puglia can offer. Definitely. I love her. Um, a Susu Maniello as well, although you don't see it mm-hmm. uh, anything like as often. But uh, So beyond those uh, regions, and we've covered a lot, um, anywhere else that you would highlight for you know value and interest currently that we haven't mentioned? Yeah, so I guess um, we haven't really touched on, on central eastern Italy. So kind of Montepulciano and um, so Abruzzo or, or um, Umbria or, or those sort of areas. And I think there's some great wine there. So I think that's the, really the bread and butter um, red wines from central Italy that can offer tremendous value again for just sort of any day drinking um, in that sort of, you know, if you're having a pizza or a bowl of pasta on a Wednesday, um, you really can't do can't do better than having a bottle of Montepulciano or a, a fantastic, um, you know, Sangiovese from, from outside of Tuscany. But then there are also great white wines. So there's Pecorino. Um, oh, yes. Or, yeah. Or, or Vietos or, uh, you know, wonderful um, 
I've been trying wines from um, white wines from Romana recently and um, you know coming across varieties I didn't know and had to Google things like Formoso or Albana um, and those wines are, are hugely charming and sit in a fridge um, for only a matter of minutes because they're so tempting um, so it's um, so I think the the sort of central eastern side of Italy or central central um, outside of Tuscany and around um, are areas that perhaps get a little um, overlooked but um, I'm hoping to shine a spotlight on over the years as I continue to buy more and more wines. And final question we always ask our guests for a desert island wine but we'll make it specific to Italy this time I think so do you have a kind of desert island favorite gosh um it's too it's too glib to say no like all of them are favorites but <laughs> but it also seems um seems too hard to pick one in particular um i have been drinking um an awful lot of um the society's exhibition <laughs> suave recently and so i should probably be incredibly boring and put something like suave on a desert island because it would be always refreshing that oyster shell and an apple and lemon bright acidity um, I'm hoping I can chill it in the waves, um, and that would that would be a wonderful wine to to drink, um, with of course seafood on my island, um, and and really enjoy. Um, but I would be um, I'd probably be kicking myself for not bringing a more classic, you know, Italian fine wine, so a Chianti Classico or a fantastic Brunello or Barolo. But I'm, oh, I'm hopeful God. that you might arrive on the desert island in a boat at some point with a bottle of red. Well, I do my best, but I have to say I, I join you for that exhibition suave because I think it's Piero Pan, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they are very special wines. So, yeah, no, I think I, I love it. I think it's vastly underrated uh, suave classico and, and mm. Piero Pan, just, a, just the top-notch producer. So, no, I think that's a good choice. Um, it's fascinating to talk to you. Um, uh, we could go on for hours, but we can't because we've had our hour. But um, good luck with uh, this this new offer of wines. I, I'm looking forward to seeing the full range and to, uh, uh, to take some of the highlights um and thank you very much uh for your expertise sarah no thank you for having me a pleasure the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world Right, let's round off as usual with some medal-winning recommendations from our sponsor, the International Wine and Spirit Competition. These are 2022 winners from Italy, of course. First of all, not just a gold medal winner, but also a trophy winner representing the best in show. Tenuta del Buonamico Cercatoia 2017. Um, I hope I've pronounced that uh, correctly. Uh, Well done to them for getting both the gold and a trophy. Overseeing the judging was Alistair Cooper, MW, a previous guest on The Drinking Hour. The panel included uh, Matthias Garpazza of Peachum Nurseries, um, a real authority on Italian wines, Serdar Balcaia, the former head sommelier of the RAC Club and dinner by Heston at the Mandarin Oriental, Salvatore Castano, Italian sommelier, uh, he's a Sicilian, um, Harry Crowther, wine consultant too. So quite a panel. Uh, This was then awarded a trophy at a separate tasting of the Senior Judging Committee, which I was fortunate to be part of this year. This is a blend of uh, majority Sangiovese with equal parts Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon. Here's the tasting note. 
Hints of leather and sandalwood, chocolate, cherries and fig envelop your senses, backed up with bags of freshness. Damson and black tea play a strong part, all the while that vibrancy resonates. A fantastic example of a terroir-driven wine. Next, an interesting and unusual white wine that scooped a gold medal, Fattoria La Viala Barricato Bianco Non Filtrato, uh, 2020. Uh, majority Chardonnay won 95 points, gold medal, the judging panel including Alistair and also Emma Dawson, MW, saying this. A charming, unfiltered wine, nose of mandarin and apricot, honey and apples with interesting peachy citrus notes. The palate shows a sweet apple puree character, rich and creamy with hints of fig and vanilla on the finish. To one of my favourite places next, we just talked about it, Campania, another gold medal winner, a red this time. Uh, Cantina San Paolo di Claudio Cotta Venaiolo Reserva 2015. The grape is Alianico, as discussed just now, and this is a Taurasi uh, DOCG, often referred to as the Barolo of the South, uh, for the wines revealing the heights to which uh, Alianico can reach in that volcanic soil that Sarah was talking about. The judge is saying here, a lovely nose of beguiling red fruit, tar, herbs and tobacco. The palate is structured with savoury black olive, herbs and red fruit, well integrated with structured tannins and tangy freshness. Authentically rich and broad, this is a classy wine. And just to prove that uh, supermarket buyers do a, a gold medal winning job too, uh, Tesco Finest 2018 Amarone della Volpalicella, a gold medal with a very impressive 96 points. As you may know, Amarone involves the use of, of partially dried grapes, um, dried in uh, sheds uh, normally, uh, traditionally in the sun, of course. Uh, this one is 70% Corvina, 30% Rondinella. Uh, that's two of the three permitted varieties, the other being Corvinoni for Amarone. Uh, this is also certified organic. Uh, this is what the panel said. Balsamic, wild strawberry, mushroom, matured red cherries, sweeted sour fruits, floral and spicy with intense herbal character on the nose, combining with white pepper and a creamy mouthfeel on the palate. Silky, well-integrated tannins with a long, vibrant finish. And uh, that's actually £16, so pretty good value too. Finally, let's round off with another wine achieving both a gold medal and a trophy for best in show. Anna Spinato, Brut Non Vintage Prosecco Valdebiadene Superiori di Cartizzi. So the uh, very special place that uh, Sarah was uh, referencing for that uh, fine expression of the Glera grape. Um, these wines were judged on location uh, by a panel overseen by... Uh, Sarah Abbott, MW, including myself, uh, Matteo Montoni, Master Sommelier, uh, Salvatore Castano again, and Andrew Johnson, boss of Woodwinters. Uh, here's the tasting note. Elegant nose of wild meadow herbs with bright lime acidity on tasting. There's a lovely fruit intensity to its palate with pear, nectarine and green apple skin coming through. Boasts a stony minerality on the finish. And if Prosecco is your thing, or even if it isn't actually, uh, do join us next time because we'll be celebrating Prosecco Day with Neil Phillips, DOC Prosecco Ambassador, and Flavio Giretto, Export Director at Villa Sandy. Uh, that's it for this week, though. My thanks to Sarah Knowles, MW. Hope you enjoyed that chat. Thank you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter, and I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, ciao. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode. 
in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.